Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to Camp Meeting 2017. It's an exciting time. We're so delighted that you've chosen to join us. Back in about February or March, somewhere along in that time of the year, as we were beginning to think about camp meeting and the themes that would not only occupy our time here, but in the coming year, I settled on Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. It seemed like such a good idea at the time. Now we're here, and it's been a long week (laughs) in Song of Songs. But actually, it has much to offer us. We are relational beings, relational creatures, and most every one of us would say, I would love to see my relationships improve. Whether it be friendships, platonic relationships, dating relationships, engaged relationships, or in particular, marriage relationships. Most of us would have to say, mine could do with some improvement. It makes me think of Timothy Keller, the well-known pastor and writer, and the story he tells about moving to New York City to plant a church that would become Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He made a deal with his wife at that point in time, Kathy Keller, and he said, here's what I need. I need you to give me three years Just three years of long days and long hours and late nights and a lot of focus on the church. I need three years in order to be able to plant the church and get it to a place where it's stable enough and strong enough that it can move more on its own. And she agreed. She entered into that agreement with him because she believed in the ministry, believed in the church, and believed in the vision where God was taking them. Well, three years passes quickly. Three years later, he said, well, just a couple of more months. And two months later, he said, well, just, just another month or two. I know these long days won't last forever. And he kept delaying it and postponing it until one day he came home. I want to read to you what happened in Keller's own words. He writes, one day I came home from work. It was a nice day outside, and I noticed that the door to our apartment's balcony was open. Just as I was taking off my jacket, I heard a smashing sound come from the balcony. In another couple of seconds, I heard another one. I immediately walked out onto the balcony and was surprised to see Kathy sitting on the floor. She had a hammer, and next to her was a stack of our wedding china. On the ground were shards of two smashed saucers. What are you doing? I asked. She looked up and said to me, You aren't listening to me. You don't realize that if you keep working these hours, you're going to destroy this family. I don't know how to get through to you. You aren't seeing how serious this is. This is what you're doing. And she brought the hammer down on the third saucer. 
I sat down trembling. I thought she had snapped. I'm listening. I said, I'm listening. (laughs) As we talked, it became clear that she was intense and laser-focused. But she was not out of control or in a rage emotionally. She spoke calmly but forcefully. Her arguments were the same as they had been months before, but I realized how deluded I had been. There would never be a convenient time to cut back. I was addicted to the level of productivity I had achieved. She saw me listening for the first time, and we finally hugged. And then I inquired, when I first came out here, I thought you were having, having an emotional meltdown. How did you get control of yourself so fast? With a grin, she answered, it was no meltdown. You see these three saucers I smashed? I nodded. I have no cups for them. The cups have been broken for years. (laughs) I had three saucers to spare. I'm glad you sat down (laughs) before I had to break any more. My guess is that more than a few of us could relate to and understand a bit where Kathy was coming from. That sense that there must be more, there must be something beyond what we currently have. You felt that, no doubt, along the way, maybe in a dating relationship, maybe in an engagement, maybe in a marriage. There must be more. There must be a better way to resolve our conflict. There must be a better way to communicate. There must be more time for us to be able to spend together. There must be more Passion. Passion. Maybe that's what some are looking for. In a marriage, looking for a renewed spark, a renewed flame, a renewed passion. Well, some might point out that the news isn't all that good. Because scientists are currently researching what happens in the brain when we fall in love. And then researching what happens as we live in love over a long period of time. They're making some interesting findings, such as those researchers at a university in Italy who say they've been able to identify a protein in the brain that spikes when people fall in love and leads to a greater sense of well-being. It spikes, and it remains at a high level for about a year, and then it drops and goes back to its previous levels. And you say, well, that's not good news. If I'm wanting more passion in my marriage, what's that supposed to say to me? Or then you look at the researchers who are talking to couples. One research project involved 5,000 couples. After all of these interviews and all these conversations, here's what they determined, probably what you could have told us. They determined that about two and a half years into a marriage, the people have really become who they are, and he's leaving clothes scattered everywhere, and she's stopped getting ready for the day like she used to, and they are both frustrated and upset with each other. In fact, the research says, the height of the disappointment peaks at three years in. And you say, Randy, you're talking about passion. Come on, I'm not sure that's realistic. Or you might even say, come on, Randy, this is church. What are you talking about passion in church for? Kind of places that to talk about passion. 
I mean, God cares about many aspects of our relationships. He cares about how well we resolve conflict. He cares about whether or not we speak the truth in love, whether or not we spend time together, whether or not we're faithful to each other, whether or not we're committed to the same goal. But, you ask, does God care at any level about passion in my marriage, in a meaningful relationship? Does he care? Well, it's a good question. A couple decides they're going to have a romantic getaway for the weekend. He buys two tickets to a musical he knows she'll love. And he smiles. She buys a nighty she knows he'll love. <laughs> and she smiles. Does God care about that? Young man stands at the front door with the girl who has stolen his heart. He stands there. They've been out several times now. He stands gazing into her eyes. The butterflies are flying. His knees are knocking. He's going to kiss her for the first time. Does God care about that? A wife, been married many years, furtively picks up the book from the Barnes & Noble bookshelf and goes and pays for it. She knows it's a trashy romance novel. She knows that. But she's missing it so much in her marriage, she just wants to read a bit about it. Does God care about that yearning within her? Medical student walks across campus on his way to class. He's got the earbuds in and the iPhone music playing. It's the latest, the hit, love song. He listens to the lyrics, and as he walks, he thinks, oh, one of these days I'll finally have enough time to have a relationship like this and to experience a love like this. Does God care about that? Does God care about passion in our most intimate of relationships? Well, we come to the Song of Songs, sometimes also called the Song of Solomon. I'm not even going to ask you to open your books to the Song of Songs. Well, first of all, you wouldn't find it probably. It would take a while. You'll find it nestled between that rather grim book called Ecclesiastes and that gospel of the Old Testament named Isaiah. It's right there between them. We don't read it much, don't pay much attention to it, really. I'm not going to ask you to turn there because our text for today is exceedingly brief. I'm going to turn there and read it to you. It's the verse that opens the song. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1, four words long. Here it goes. Solomon's Song of Songs. Just four words. Solomon's Song of of songs. I want to pause and linger over those words today because I think they contain within them some important realities for us to understand. So the first word, Solomon. Scholars tell us we can't be absolutely certain that Solomon wrote the book. 
Though many historically and even in the modern time believe that he did, and there are good reasons for believing so, I will accept that as the case for our series. Solomon. That's the first word. So who was Solomon? Solomon was the son of David, king in Israel, very wealthy, exceedingly wealthy, a great builder, but also a prolific writer. In fact, the writer of 1 Kings in the fourth chapter tells us that Solomon authored 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. Solomon was a great writer. We might wonder why it was exactly that he wrote. Well, there's an old English verse that might give us a bit of an insight into that. Maybe you've heard it along the way. King David and King Solomon lived very wicked lives with many, many concubines and many, many wives. But then as old age came creeping on, they had qualms. So Solomon wrote the Proverbs and David wrote the Psalms. So maybe that's why he wrote. But for whatever reason he wrote, he wrote prolifically. There's one other reality about Solomon that we need to bear in mind. Solomon was a man of great wisdom, reputed to be the wisest man on all the earth. As you read a story, you see that people come to the throne of Solomon just to hear the words of wisdom fall from his lips. They come to get understanding about their lives, about their futures. They come to understand philosophy and history and theology. They come to understand from the lips of Solomon the wisdom of God, an exceedingly wise man who was also inspired, we affirm, in his writing of what would become Scripture. That's the first word, Solomon. Then there's a second word. It's the word song. Solomon's song. Immediately we know what we're dealing with here. We realize we're not dealing with epistle or law or gospel or narrative or apocalyptic or prophecy. We're not dealing with any of those realities. That one word tells us exactly what it is that we're about to hear, Solomon's song. It's a song in which the lyrics will be rich, the metaphors will be deep, but the words will be few. It grasps much in simple language. Solomon's song. It is believed that since that's what it is, that it was meant to be sung. In fact, some believe that it was composed for one of the wedding celebrations that would have happened in Israel. In ancient Judaism, a wedding celebration lasted for seven days. And so it would be that as the bride and the groom, the new couple emerged from the bridal chambers, morning after morning, that immediately the singers and the musicians would strike up the band and they would begin to sing. We would hear a soprano voice on one side sing, your kisses are more precious to me than even the best wine. And then with the sensual strumming of the harp, a tenor voice responds, You are beautiful and winsome above all women, my love. And then backing them up were the daughters of Jerusalem singing lilting phrases to the new couple. 
It's a song that Solomon here composes. It's a song about a man and a woman in love, passionate love. Now, that's not the way it has always been understood. Historically, it was under, and even for some in the current day, it was understood in very different ways. If I could state some of the thinking behind the understanding, it went something like this. Have you read the book? This is a sensual book. No, 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 no. This cannot be about passionate love between a man and a woman because that reality, it's sacrilegious to speak of that in a religious context. Spirituality and sexuality have nothing to do with each other. That was some of the thinking that went into it. In fact, I'd like to read to you the words. It's a bit longer than I might normally read. But I thought it stated it as well as I have read it stated. How this song has been approached over the centuries. The words are the words of Douglas Sean O'Donnell, Old Testament scholar, who writes this. The near consensus of both Jewish and Christian interpretation for at least 1,600 years was that the Song of Songs is not about human love at all, but divine love. That is, it sings of God's love for Israel and or Christ's love for the church or the individual Christian soul. The reason for this seems to be the presupposition that human sexual love is an inappropriate topic for Scripture. Nicholas of Lyra could speak of the love between a bride and groom as proper, but not the proper subject of Scripture, and thus not of this song. Such fleshly love, even within marriage, has, in his words, a certain dishonorable and improper quality about it, even in marriage. Similar, Theodoret of Cyrus wrote that those who give the song a corporeal or a fleshly interpretation have committed an awful blasphemy. This explains why. From Origen of Alexandria to Charles Spurgeon of London, from the medieval mystics to the American Puritans, Christians allegorized every jot and tittle of the song, each thigh and breast and kiss and consummation. Allegorized. For example, one commentator said that the phrase, while the king was on his couch, referred to the gestation period of Christ in the womb of Mary. And the sachet of myrrh that lies between the bride's breasts symbolizes Christ in the soul of the believer who lies between the great commands to love God and one's neighbor. Is it just me? Those allegories are orthodox and certainly Christ-centered and thus edifying, but they are also exegetically absurd and potentially theologically dangerous. It is dangerous when Christian commentators, theologians, and pastors think there is a radical dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. Praying is sacred, kissing is secular. When we believe that sexuality is the antithesis of spirituality and there's a great chasm between eros and agape, we are in danger of losing not only our witness to the world. What? Your religion has nothing to say about sex except that it's bad? but also the vital tenets of the Christian faith, the incarnation, the bodily resurrection, and the new heavens and the new earth. Following Marvin Pope's analogy, 
I liken the history of interpretation to Hans Christian Andersen's children's tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Just as the emperor's ministers and subjects affirmed that he was indeed wearing clothes when he was not, interpreters kept telling themselves and their readers that the song is solely about spiritual love when it's not. But just as a child saw the reality of the situation, the emperor is naked, so do we see that the characters in the song are naked. They're naked and unashamed, and today we should share their lack of shame. For the song is a song that Adam could have sung in the Garden of Eden when Eve arose miraculously from his side, and it remains a song that we can and should sing in the bedroom, the church, and the marketplace of ideas. Were someone to ask you, how would you summarize that rather lengthy quote? What does it say? I don't know how you would respond. I know how I would respond. I would respond in this way. I would summarize it by saying, God cares about passionate love in your relationship. If you're dating someone with whom you are falling in love and beginning to think about a future together, God cares whether or not you're attracted to that person. He cares. If you're engaged to be married and you find yourself yearning and longing and waiting for that day, for that night, God cares. That matters to him. If you're in a marriage where the spark has fizzled and the flame has died and you find yourself hoping and yearning and praying for something new, something different, something better in that relationship, that matters to God. The song is a song that sings in eloquent words about the fact that your physical relationship to a spouse, the attraction that you feel to one with whom you are falling in love, matters to God. That's what the song says. If somebody asks you, where did you get that idea that those kinds of things matter to God, just tell them, I heard it in a love song. I heard it in a love song called Solomon's Song. That's the second word. Solomon the first, Solomon, wise, learned, inspired writer of what would become Scripture. Second song, second word, song. God cares about passionate love in your relationship. But there are two more words. These words are of songs. Solomon's song of songs. It's a superlative way of speaking of what will follow. Saying this is the greatest, this is the best, this is at the top of the charts. We find those kinds of phrases in Scripture. We find, for example, the phrase king of kings. When we read that phrase, we understand that there are many kings, and yet that Jesus is the king above all the other kings. We find the phrase, Lord of Lords. We understand that phrase. We understand it to know that there are kings of many and lords of plenty, but there is one Lord above and beyond and over all. 
we see the phrase, holy of holies, referring to that compartment behind the the veil, behind the curtain in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. That was the holiest place of all. It recognizes there were other holy places. This was the holiest. A superlative way of speaking of some reality. And the introduction to this book says, Solomon's Song of Songs. It's at the top of the charts. None gets better than this. It got me to thinking last week or two or three, what's the greatest love song of all time? So I went nosing around the Internet, ended up on Billboard's Hot 100s chart, ended up looking at a section of the Internet there where they said, this is the greatest love song of all times. We have tracked it since the Hot 100 have been going back in the late 1950s, 1958 to be exact, all the way up to the current time. And using a different metric, different number of metrics, we have determined the greatest love song of all time. Now they said, we have limited ourselves to song, songs that include the words love in the title. Well, it got me interested. So I started going down the songs. Many I didn't recognize before my time. Some I did recognize. Some coming up to the current time. Few artists that I knew and recognized. The Bee Gees, How Deep Is Your Love? Back down, four, three, two. What is the greatest love song of all time? And then there it was. A song called Endless Love. Written by Lionel Richie, sung by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross. Some of you remember that. I was very, very young. Some of you remember that. Do you remember these words? My love, there's only you in my life, the only thing that's right. My first love, you're every breath I take, you're every step I make. And I... I want to share all my love with you. No one else will do. And your eyes, they tell me how much you care. Oh, yes, you'll always be my endless love. Says it right there. Greatest love song of all time. Well, I don't know. Solomon might have something to say about that. Because he's, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Have you read mine? Have you listened to its melody, sensed its rhythms, felt its passion? Solomon's Song of Songs. One Old Testament scholar makes this brief comment. As a superlative, the title may mean that this is the best of Solomon's 1,005 songs or more likely that this is the best of all. Songs. What does that mean? What does it mean if Solomon is indeed making the claim this is the best of all songs? What does it mean that it is a song about passionate love between a man and a woman? What does that mean? I would suggest it means this. God not only cares about passionate love in your relationship, but it means God celebrates passionate love in your relationship. 
That's what it means. In fact, the more time I spent with Song of Songs, considering, thinking, reading, praying, the more clear it has become to me that there appears to be woven into our DNA, our very makeup, that yearning for that quality of love to share in a permanent kind of relationship with another human being. Now you may say, oh, that's just you, Randy. Just think about, think about the greatest love song of all time. What does it say? My endless love. There's a yearning not only for the passion, but for the permanence, the endurance of that kind of love that is not just in love here and now, but when the time comes that the sun sets on the pathway of my life, that that person who loved me will still be there seems to me that there is a yearning in the human soul for that kind of love. It's in the religious songs. It's in the popular songs. In fact, this week, when you get in the car and turn on the radio, turn it to a popular music station. Don't count how many of the songs are about love. Rather, do this. Count how many of the songs are not about love. Be a much quicker count. Because almost everyone is about love. In fact, did you know this? This was new to me. Did you know what goes on in the romantic fiction industry? Not just in our country, but in our world. The romance novels. A recent year, the year 2013, the sales of romance novels topped out worldwide at $1.1 billion. Billion dollars. Harlequin, the number one publisher of romance novels, introduces about 800 new titles a year. The average romance novel reader reads much more than the rest of us. The average reader in this country reads three books, pardon me, five books a year. A year, five books. The average romance novel reader reads one book a week. In that same year, well, may I tell you something about the depth of the material. <laughs> in that same year, 2013, Harlequin sold... Three romance novels. Are you ready for this? Worldwide, three romance novels per second. Per second. So you ask, who is reading all of this? Who's buying all of these books? Don't raise your hands, please. <laughs> <clears throat> Who's reading? 84% women, 16% men. Most in a relationship or a marriage. Between 30 to 54 years of age, college educated and making good money. What does it indicate? I would suggest that among all the rather negative lessons we could draw from that is at least this lesson. There is something woven into us that yearns for, that desires that kind of love. And when we're missing it, we can build castles in the air because we so much desire it. But you want to know the good news? Solomon's Song of Songs suggests to us 
that God celebrates passionate love in your relationship. Not only that he cares about it, but that he celebrates it. So what does that mean for us? What is the take-home message? Well, I would say the take-home message might sound something like this. If you're a young person, you've fallen in love, or at least beginning to, you hope. That person is, is, is wonderful. You share much by way of interest, many conversations, a lot of fun, a lot of laughter, common goals, similar religious faiths, similar family backgrounds. You have so much in common that the world looks good ahead. The future is bright, except for one thing. You just don't have a spark. There's no chemistry, no desire or attraction. I would say pay close attention because God cares about whether or not there is a spark between you. God celebrates when there is desire there. And God knows that the road ahead will be long and at times rough. Make sure the spark is there. Or you're a married couple. And the spark has flamed out. And you're wondering what has gone wrong. How has the desire died? You think we've had our time, we've had our kids, we've had our day. That's all past now. There's more to marriage than sex, you say. But your spouse keeps trying to allure you, to pull you in. And you wonder, what's gone wrong? Is there something more? You know what I would say? God cares about that. That matters to God. Just as it matters to God how well you handle conflict and how deeply you converse and how truthful you are with each other. Take the song and begin to sing. Relight the candle. Or maybe you are in your more mature years. And you think, no, the culture around me says that physical, passionate love, that's for the young people, the beautiful people, the ones with the trim bodies and the ones with the future ahead of them. That's for them. We, we've got grandkids. And if our grandkids knew, they would be horrified. <laughs> Don't pay attention to those messages from the culture. Rather, open up and listen to the greatest love song of all time that tells you that from the time of your marriage to the day of your death, what happens in your intimate, passionate love with each other matters to God. That God celebrates that love that he created for us to enjoy. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it means that God cares and God celebrates passionate love in human relationships where the context is right. So what about it? Are you up for it? I have really been praying about this month. 
And my prayer has been, God, get me through it. (laughs) But I want to make an invitation to you. I want to invite you to read the song, to listen to the song, to sing the song. Because when you sing Solomon's Song of Songs, you just never know what God is about to do with you and your beloved.